Welcome to Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast where we talk with experts as you build your worldview. I'm May Lily Lee. These podcasts originate from video interviews you can find on our website, praxiscircle.com. Become a member by registering at the site and subscribe or follow this podcast for our latest episodes. Today is the first of a three-part conversation with Mary Everset, essayist, novelist, and the author of several books of nonfiction. She holds the Panula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Center in Washington and is Senior Research Fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. In today's episode, Mary discusses the influence of growing up in upstate New York, the importance of mentors in her life, and why she believes millennials and Gen Zers have been robbed. Let's listen. Well, let's get rolling, okay. Um, I've heard you talk about your upbringing, but I have, the more I've learned, the, you know, like you're like everyone, it's, it was important to who you are and the way you, you see things. Um, could you tell us about that? How has that influenced the way you look at the world? Sure, thanks, Doug. I grew up in a series of small towns and hamlets scattered across upstate New York. I think there were 12 of them. Um, my stepfather was a manual laborer, so he would move for work. And along the way, I attended, I think, five different public schools. Uh, this area of the country, rural central New York, is wild and forbidding and austere. And it's funny about one's sense of place, because although I've lived in Washington, D.C., for 30 years, I always think of myself as a girl from upstate New York. Uh, this part of the world is also working class, rural. It was the kind of place where in my high school, uh, more boys went into the military than went to college. So there is a deep patriotism and love of country, quite apart from politics, that was stamped on me from an early age uh, and upstate New York had a lot to do with that. What, when, as you think about where you are now, how has your worldview, so to speak, changed, or has it, has it amplified? How, how would you, how would you think of that? The love of country is unchanged. Um, I think, when I think of worldview. I think of it in somewhat political terms and in the sense that my worldview is wedded to conservatism, I think there has been some change, say, between the Reagan years and now. The biggest change is that during the Cold War, those of us who called ourselves conservatives could easily believe that the solution to the world's problems was more freedom more freedom would fix everything. And when you're talking about an evil communist empire, that's a pretty good recipe. But for what the United States is facing today internally, I have more problems with that message because more freedom isn't going to solve the deep cultural problems that have been compounding for decades now in this country. To the extent that anything has changed, it's that. You know, that's a really, I've never heard that distinction said the way you just said it, where 
when you when you, when you're in the Cold War and you're dealing with communism and we thought of it as totalitarianism, freedom seemed to be the magic answer. But you remove that, and then all of a sudden it's not the magic answer anymore. I've never really never really heard anybody say it that clearly before. What about your um, your famous 15 years where you took you know professional time off? I want to hear about that. I bet you didn't take professional time. I bet you stayed working, but anyway. Those were the most important 15 years of my life. Uh, we have a family of four children, and I was able to take 15 years off. I remember literally the first day I realized how important it was to disengage from the outside world was when I had our first infant, and I literally took my watch off. Remember the days when we wore watches? Because I had been keeping it on in order to observe a deadline, and I realized it was fruitless, because you can't take care of a baby and observe deadlines. At least I couldn't. I'm sure there are super women who can. And that was the beginning of spending time on playgrounds and elsewhere, wherever little kids go, and then big kids and teenagers go. And so, Although I'm not in the advice business at all, when young women ask, how does one have a career and have a family, I always say it's entirely possible. But for some of us, doing it simultaneously is a recipe for unhappiness. So if you can do one thing and then the other, uh, that's a pretty good recipe for, for life, I think. Exactly. I, I felt like as a dad that um, working on some pretty stressful things at times um, that you would come home and the little kids would, they, they make you realize that everything you're working on is really not that important, <laughs> you know? It's just, it's just kind of silly, stupid stuff that adults do. But, uh, um, all right, well, I'm gonna jump right into this question as soon as Patrick gets out from behind. There we go, okay. Um, this is, uh, we're already on number five, okay, and um, you, you write a lot about what's missing in Gen Z's lives, and I, th I think your, your most recent speech about, you've, I call it You've Been Robbed, that was delivered to the National Conservative Conference, talks a lot about what is missing or what is missing in the lives of Gen Z's. Could you summarize that in three minutes or so? I mean, a 20-minute speech, I don't know if you can, but I want to get you fresh on this while, while we're all fresh. So it's very easy and it's common for people, say, of the baby boom generation to make fun of the millennials, right? We have all of these derogatory terms like snowflake uh, that get hurled at the millennials and the Zoomers. And I think that's a big mistake, first of all, because there's a lack of empathy behind it, but also because the millennials and the Zoomers have distinct problems that their parents did not. And in the speech that you mentioned, the theme, that, the theme of that speech was you've been robbed, because I do think young people have been robbed, not intentionally, but they've been deprived of things that their parents could take for granted. So for example, <clears throat> robust family life is one of those things. 
families have been shrinking, families have been imploding, there's been a lot of family breakup during the decades since the sexual revolution. And so that's one pretty big thing that's missing in a lot of young lives. It's not the only thing. Young people, because of ideological indoctrination in the universities, uh, are being taught that their country is a terrible place, that America is a failed experiment, that it can't be distinguished from uh, the worst parts of its history. So they've been robbed of something very ordinary there too, which is the ability to feel proud of where you come from. And of course, because of the same kind of indoctrination, they've also been robbed of the classics, the great books. It is no longer de rigueur for them to be taught these things. All of these are treasures to be passed down through generations. And the generations before the millennials and the Zoomers have largely failed at that transmission. That's what I meant in saying that they've been robbed. How, how do you think, this, this isn't in there, how would you respond to that if you were them? What, that's, that's an off the wall question a little bit. Do you see that happening? <clears throat> I think what, they know. What, what response have you gotten from them? Let, let me ask you that, with that message. Because it's not a, a, a brand new message from Mary. I know that. Well, that's an interesting question. I have only begun to enter the modern world in the sense of having a website of my own. But the uh, wonderful young man who runs it <clears throat> tells me that my work is read among people in my age group, tail end of the baby boom, and people in their late 20s and early 30s. Those are the two demographics most interested in what's on offer. And that suggests to me that people in that younger demographic are responding, that there is a sense that something is wrong, something generational has gone wrong. And in a lot of my work, what I'm trying to do is teach them that the names they've come up with for what ails them are the wrong names. In other words, what's a problem for younger people in America is not heteronormativity. Uh, it's not the gender binary. It's not the patriarchy. It's not structural racism. To say that is not to say that racism doesn't exist. It does, and if you're a Christian, it's a sin, uh, and so there we have it. Uh, but Structural racism, heteronormativity, all of that, all those abstractions that they're taught in college do not get to the root of what is ailing young America. What's ailing young America is a people deficit and a failure of transmission of culture. Yeah, I think um, I see a little bit uh, of sort of the Jordan Peterson or uh, Roger Scruton where you find thoughtful young people really searching for answers. And when they do that, often they land on people like you. So I, th I think that's a little bit of, the, uh, of what's going on there. Um, you're, you're giving answers in a way that makes sense to them. Uh, which leads me kind of to this other question. I, I, you've heard me mention over the phone or our Zoom calls, your book, and I get yours and Michael Novak's mixed up, but where you where you talk, you, you give case studies about moving from left to right, okay? 
and Heather was one of those. Um, what, just looking back on that, what, what usually makes that happen? So at one point I pulled together a book of 12 different voices on the right, <clears throat> excuse me, 12 different conservatives talking about how they had moved from left to right. And the common denominator was academia. The common denominator was that they had gone to elite schools and been radicalized in reverse. In other words, reacting to the extreme left-wing environment on campus, they found themselves moving uh, more this way. Uh, another common denominator was just life itself, the experience of, say, getting married, having a family, uh, which tends to teach people that there are certain things about human nature that are entrenched. Not everyone draws that conclusion, but many people are forced to a more sort of pragmatic, conservative understanding of the world by, by that kind of life experience as well. So those are, those are two factors that seem to come up most often. Now, now we're moving to the part where I'm, I'm asking you about people you've known or haven't known that have influenced you. And um, as you could tell, I didn't want to necessarily put names in your, in your mouth or anything in, in telling you who to talk about. But of those you have known outside your family, uh, that you've known personally, worked for, who, who, who has been one or two of the most influential? Certainly a professor I had at uh, Cornell University. <coughs> uh, his name was Norman Kretzmann, and he was one of the world's great medieval scholars. He taught medieval philosophy. And he was a mentor who was very important for a number of reasons. One, because he believed in me, uh, where philosophy was not something I had known anything about. So he encouraged me, like any good mentor. But also, he was wrestling with things himself. He was a medieval scholar from a long line of Lutheran ministers. And he thought he was agnostic, even though he taught all of this stuff about <clears throat> Thomas Aquinas, uh, etc. Most of his best friends were Catholic medievalists, uh, people in religious orders. And I was fascinated that someone could be agnostic because at Cornell University at that time, and probably now even more so, there was very little religious observance by anyone. And the understanding that this whole God business was behind us was common. And yet here was this towering intellectual figure, one of the most brilliant men I've ever met, who couldn't make up his own mind about it. And that somehow planted a seed. Because if someone of his stature was still thinking about something that everyone else thought was off the table, what did that tell us? It's a great answer. And um, boy, that's an ongoing thing. Um, uh, I have to go to the next question. Uh, I'd rather not. But uh, what about people that have been influential in your life that you haven't known? Not, not a biblical or within the Catholic Church, but just um, you know, thinkers that you haven't known, maybe 
the novelist Evelyn Waugh comes to mind. Mm -hmm. uh, that seems like a random answer. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but there are so many writers, Doug, I really would have trouble narrowing it down. But I did want to tell you a story uh, about someone who influenced me that mm -hmm. I have not shared elsewhere. Okay. And that was my late grandfather. His name mm -hmm. was Steve Hamas, H-A-M-A-S, mm -hmm. spelled like yeah. the terrorist yeah. group, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was a world-class boxer. Wow. He was a heavyweight champion. He defeated several people who held the title, including Max Schmeling and Max Baer and Tommy Lodgren. If you're a boxing fan, you'll know those names. Uh, so he's a piece of American history, but it wasn't the boxing that left the impression so much as, again, he was a man who was inspiring to everyone who knew him. We'd say he was cool. Um, young people followed him everywhere. And he was a devout Catholic. And he went to Mass most days. And this juxtaposition of this man who was a celebrity and a world-class athlete and a leader, having the humility to be found in church all the time, which wasn't something he was public about, made a very deep impression. And I'm sharing that with you uh, because I think very few people know of that connection. Michael Novak did know of that connection. He knew about my grandfather and once when Michael introduced me in public, he said that I wrote the way my grandfather boxed, and it was the compliment of my life. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's really amazing. Holy Toledo. And that's when boxing was a very serious uh, endeavor. Uh, you know, it was serious boxing. Um, Michael knew about that, by the way, yeah. because we figured it out. And our families, whenever they came over to the United States, came from the same corner of northeastern Slovakia. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so Michael was fascinated by these connections of the dots. He, he's, he's something, a tough guy. Um, he even looks like John Paul II, I think. Um, they're both tough. Uh, what about um, some of these famous people, could you just mention a thought or two about any of these people, uh, Irving Kristol or George Schultz or Gene, if you don't want to, you don't have to, but it's, it's not name dropping. I think people are fascinated about impressions about people that, you know, will be lost if you don't put them on video, so. Of course. I would love to say a few words about all of them out of gratitude. One of the blessings of my life has been a series of wonderful mentors. So Gertrude Himmelfarb, for example, who was Irving Kristol's wife, made a point of inviting Irving's interns over to their home regularly. We were regularly invited to parties where there were important people and we were just lowly interns at a little magazine. and. That kind of graciousness impressed itself on all of us because here was this world-class intellectual, Gertrude Himmelfarb, hobnobbing with the interns at the Public Interest magazine. So she was a wonderful model. Her marriage to Irving was a wonderful model. Irving Kristol was the greatest mentor of my life. He taught me 
anything I've managed to learn about writing, editing, uh, handling oneself rhetorically. And he not only taught me, his magazine, The Public Interest, was like a little university for generations of people like me. Irving and B were both incredibly generous with their time and their thoughts. Uh, Jean Kirkpatrick was another one. Uh, Irving Crystal sent me to her. She was our ambassador at the United Nations, and she was needing writing help, ghostwriting help. She didn't need help writing. It's just that the demands on her time were such that a little bit of um, writing behind the scenes was useful. And so I worked for her for six months. Again, a world-class figure and a very maternal person. She told me more than once that as a mother of three sons, she had always wanted a daughter, and she cast me in that role. She gave me tickets to concerts. She asked me what I was working on apart from work. We stayed in touch. She was there when Nick and I were married. Again, one couldn't ask for a more uh, fantastic mentor than Jean Kirkpatrick. Michael Novak, I could speak for hours about. He was so important <clears throat> to encouraging my work, to being that friend and that mentor. Uh, I'll give you one example. When I did something pretty unusual in these quarters, which was to write a novel <clears throat> that was addressed against the new atheism, Michael's idea was to orchestrate an event around it, and so he he read it, we had an event, our, one of our children is an actress, and she read from the book, and it was so gala. Um, and Michael said, you know, this should be a play. And I thought it was just his usual sort of offbeat <laughs> suggestion. Years later, it actually happened. It was turned into a stage play by a noted playwright, Jeffrey Fisk, and it played at Catholic University for a couple of weeks. This was all magic, and the magic came from Michael. There was just something magical about him, which is why I wrote not one, but I think several eulogies for him. <laughs> that, that is uh, the last one I want to just ask about is, is George Schultz. He, was that more just a, a, an employment situation, or did you have the same feeling of admiration. I did not. And we will not put my question <clears throat> down sure. there, okay. I worked as a speechwriter for Secretary yeah. of State Schultz for two years and did not have much personal contact with him because speechwriters tend not to. There are layers of bureaucracy in between. But I can report that he was universally admired. And I often think when we read the news today, and it seems as if <clears throat> and it seems as if everyone's at each other's throats politically. He may have been the last great figure that way, who had the admiration of the Foreign Service officers in the building, the political appointees in the building, and people on both sides of the aisle in Congress. So he was a, an estimable man with natural gravitas. I agree. There are very few people since then where both parties would may agree or disagree, but say this is a heavyweight, you know. Um, what, what about, can you talk, we're almost on done with page one. 
um, moving along very well. Uh, your, can you talk about your responsibilities at the Catholic Information Center and Faith and Reason Institute? I can see why you've gravitated there. Uh, it's perfect. Well, you know. <coughs> Sorry. The Catholic Information Center in downtown Washington, D.C. is a very special place. It is an intellectual oasis in a political city. And it features books, lectures by all kinds of notable people, etc. But it's also a spiritual safe place. It's the closest <clears throat> tabernacle to the White House. And mass is said there daily. And it was presided over for years by the man whose, whose title I bear so proudly, Father Arne Panula. For 10 years, he ran the Catholic Information Center and built it into an intellectual powerhouse. <clears throat> Among other things, it is one of many institutional experiments in getting an end run around the universities. What I mean is that there are programs, including an intellectual program called the Leonine Forum, which brings together young professionals to read great books and have great discussions with excellent leaders, um, thought leaders, we would call them. And so <clears throat> it is a place that does what we started talking about in the beginning. It's a place that is remedial for the millennials and Gen Xers who did not get these kinds of riches from the university and from elite schools. So we're trying to do something about giving it back to them. Well, it really seems to be one of the points of light, and I, I, I get their uh, social media, and uh, but that's true of the whole Catholic Church. As I said, when you got your award at, in the Q&A, I, I said, uh, where would we be without the Catholic Church? We might not have Western Civ. I mean, it's, it's you all are intellectually engaging at a serious level what needs to be discussed and and, and, and I mean, I don't see that force really anywhere else in the same way. There is a really vibrant counterculture that is Catholic, and I'm proud to be part of it. The Faith and Reason Institute is another such institution. Its president is Dr. Robert Royal, who is a renowned Dante scholar and a renowned scholar in other areas as well, who puts out a daily a column written by different people called thecatholicthing.org. So you can see that there are these supple attempts in different dimensions to keep putting the word out and to counteract the culture. And I do think the Catholic organizations I'm familiar with have been most proactive about this. Mary Eberstadt with the Catholic Information Center and the Faith and Reason Institute. On the next episode, Mary discusses her book about the sexual revolution and identity politics and why loneliness is a national epidemic. I'm May Lily Lee. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Mary Eberstadt. Subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts and visit us at praxiscircle.com for building worldviews.